We are again reminded and assured of the promise of the gospel that those who confess their sins and turn to the Savior whom God has sent will have the full forgiveness of their sins and already do have that forgiveness. And it's in that comfort that we can worship the Lord and remember the birth of Christ in peace and in joy and in fellowship with our Father. Let's open God's word now that he would teach us. Our scripture reading comes from Two places in scripture, first from Psalm 72. Psalm 72, you can see uh, on the title there, it was uh, dedicated to Solomon, but it was recognized almost immediately as a messianic psalm. It was taken as such by by the people of God throughout history, recognizing that it speaks beyond Solomon to the Messiah who would come. So let's read Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor and the, of the poor of the people and, and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that, that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's now also turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1.
We'll read from verse 18 to chapter 2, verse 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, and his mo- with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from, from hymn 15, stances 1 through 3. The text to which we'll give special attention this morning is Matthew 2, the verses 1 through 12. It's quite a long text. I won't read it over again now, but you will probably be helped by having your Bibles open. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as any guests who might be with us this Christmas morning, One of the things that you notice almost right away as you read the Gospels, this is especially true for a new Christian who reads them the first time, is that the Gospels of Jesus' life in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they begin so differently. Uh, None of these Gospels contradict one another But it's amazing how they focus on very, very different aspects and and different stories to tell about Jesus' life. Each of the four Gospels has their their own very different priorities, different people that they're writing to, and and different things that they want to show from Jesus' life. And so they they pick and choose. They, They tell different stories about Jesus' life. Last year at Christmas, we looked at the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Luke. Luke was a a Gentile doctor writing to fellow Gentiles. And one of the things that Luke wanted us to know is is how humbly Jesus was born, in in contrast with all the the centers of power in that day. And so he starts with a a decree from Caesar Augustus to the whole world that they should be uh, run through a census and then it turns, he turns the page and, and you see a humble carpenter, Joseph and Mary, and they, they pick up everything in order to obey the powers that be. And they go to the humble town of, of Bethlehem and even there they, they can't find a room uh, in an inn. And so they, so they go to a barn and, and little Jesus, the king of the world, is born in a humble little barn surrounded by livestock. And nobody even initially heard about Jesus' birth except for humble shepherds. They, they weren't, it wasn't a high class. To us, it seems sort of almost romantic and beautiful. But shepherds were, were lowly people in that day. And they were the only ones who heard of Jesus' birth initially. So Luke wants us to see how meek and how small and how humble Jesus was in his birth. Matthew has a totally different priority and a totally different story to tell. Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. His goal was 
in the first place to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the promised Messiah that the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to. And that means he is the rightful king of Israel. And so Matthew wants his readers to know this, that, that Jesus is the, the promised king of Israel. And not only is he the king of Israel, but Matthew wants to make sure that we know that if Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures pointed to, that means he's also the king of the world, the king of all the nations. Well, you can see right away then why Matthew wants to tell this story about Jesus' birth. Now let me say from the outset, there's a lot that we don't know about uh, these magi. We don't know in the first place who these men were exactly. We, we typically think of them as, as three men, but of course there's nowhere in, in Scripture that actually says there were three. There could have been two, there could have been four, there could have been a dozen for all that we know. Um, so, so we don't know how large the group was. We also don't know where exactly they were from. The term wise men usually refers to, to some sort of class of astrologers. And the phrase from the east would suggest something like Persia or Babylon. Uh, that's also the, the center of astrology in that day. In fact, the only other place that this word is used, this term magi, is in Daniel, of course, writing from, from Persia, where he speaks about the astrologers and the magicians and wise men of, of Babylon and, and Persia. Also, we don't know exactly when this visit happened. Uh, this is one of the, uh, besides the fact that there weren't necessarily three, this is the other point of confusion that you, you often see in, in depictions of, of, of nativity scenes where you have shepherds and cattle and, and everything in the barn and then these three uh, magi there as well. We know for sure that it wasn't that soon after Jesus' birth. For one thing, uh, Herod wants to kill all the boys under two years of age. So there certainly wasn't the impression that, that Jesus was just born that day. But even more, uh, an even more clear piece of evidence is uh, Jesus wasn't in a barn anymore. It says he was in, in a house. Uh, so, uh, and that's, that's in verse 11. Um, so, so some time has passed since Jesus was born. It could have been weeks uh, perhaps even months. It was a very long journey. If, if they were from Babylon, that was a long journey on foot. So we're talking weeks, possibly months, possibly even more than a year that, uh, that passed before these wise men came. So they, they certainly wouldn't have been there together with the shepherds. So all we know is, is what the text tells us. There were these wise men that came from the east and they came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, we have to add one more thing to the list of, uh, of things that we don't know. And that is, we don't know exactly what these wise men saw. Uh, it, it would be very easy for me to spend the rest of the sermon speculating. And, and there are many 
many speculations out there, supernovas, uh, different planets, Jupiter and Venus sort of coming close together, uh, different patterns in the stars. Uh, There are all sorts of theories about what these wise men saw. The simple fact is we don't know what exactly uh, they saw. It seems most likely that it was just some sort of heavenly light that God had shown them. Uh, In any case, God allowed these wise men not just to see it, but also to interpret it according to whatever interpretations and schemas that that these wise men from Persia, if that's where they're from, whatever interpretations they had, whatever they saw, they decided this can only mean that a king has been born to the Jews and that we ought to go there and worship him. Now, Jerusalem was obviously the natural place for them to go since that was the capital of Judea. And and that's where you would expect to find the king. But that's, of course, not where the baby Jesus was. Instead, they found Herod. You know, Herod was probably the worst person for them to run into. Let me say just a few things about Herod. He's more well-known as as Herod the Great. Uh, We actually, it's interesting, we know more about Herod than any single person in ancient history, uh, including emperors, including uh, uh, Alexander the Great. Um, There's nobody in ancient history that we know more about than Herod. And the reason is because there's this uh, Jewish historian, Josephus, who wrote two entire books uh, about Herod's life. And he, and he lived during the time of Christ and, and during the, the end of the life of Herod. Now, Herod was the king of the Jews. He was only half Jew himself. He was appointed by the Romans as the king of Judea almost 40 years before Jesus was born. And he died probably a year or two after Jesus was born. So Jesus was born right at the end of Herod's life. He was a very smart politician. He knew how to uh, stay in favor with the different Roman emperors that, that uh, ruled during, during his lifetime. He was also a very popular leader, at least at times in, in Israel, because he had the ability to organize these massive construction projects, the most famous of which is, is the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember in Matthew 24, the disciples are walking with Jesus and they're just oogling about the the size and the splendor of the temple. Well, that was the temple that Herod built and and it made him incredibly popular with the people of Israel. At the same time, Herod was also known to be an incredibly cruel person. And this got especially bad during his old age as he became more and more Uh, paranoid and and unpredictable and and just downright cruel. He could be known to execute people on the spot. He was extremely suspicious that people were plotting against him. In fact, it was during this time that he had several of his own sons executed, as well as his his favorite wife. He had ten wives, but he had one favorite with whom he he had had lived uh, in, in seeming harmony his entire life, and then towards the end of his life, he had her executed on suspicion of, of plotting against him. Uh, the, the emperor Augustus uh, once said of Herod, it would be safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his children. Uh, 
Uh, and so the massacre of the, of the children in Bethlehem is, is very much in character for, for Herod. Whenever he felt like his throne was challenged, he would lash out and, and he would be uh, a very dangerous person. So he was probably the worst person in the world for these wise men to run into saying, hey, we heard a king was born to the Jews. Of course, the wise men didn't know any better. They didn't know who Herod was. They didn't know what these prophecies in the Old Testament were all about. But verse 3 tells us that when Herod heard their question, he was troubled, and it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And that's very understandable when you understand Herod's character. This was not the sort of thing to go and tell Herod. Well, verse 4 tells us that Herod assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now notice, this is the first mention of, of a Christ. Before it was just king of the Jews. Now it's the Christ, or, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. The wise men had simply asked about the king of the Jews, but Herod apparently knew enough about Scripture to interpret that as, this must be the Messiah. This was a time when many, many Jews were expecting the Messiah to be born. Daniel had, had prophesied 500 years ago that in 490 years, uh, approximately, the Messiah would be born. And, and this was uh, very close to, to that uh, time frame. And so the chief priests and the scribes informed Herod that the Messiah was to be born, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. And, and they quoted uh, Micah 5, uh, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's, that's the uh, uh, version that you find in Matthew 2. So Herod, ever the politician, he went back to these wise men and he told them to go to Bethlehem and when they found the baby, to please let him know so that he too could come and worship the, the newborn king. Of course, that was very far from, from his real intentions. Now, I want to just pause here in the story. We'll come back and, and, and finish the story. But I, I want to just pause here and reflect on, on three very important observations that we want to make from what has happened in the story thus far. We're here this morning, of course, to celebrate the birth of Christ. And as we do that, here, here are three things that Matthew wants to make sure that we notice and we don't miss. Number one, Jesus is born the King of Kings. That's the first and, and the most important lesson that Matthew wants us to see as clear as day. The baby boy Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is not just the promised Messiah and the fulfillment of Scripture, not just the King of the Jews, but the king of all nations. It's amazing that, that Matthew, a Jew, writing to Jews, starts his account of Jesus' life with these pagan Gentile astrologers from, from somewhere in the east. It's obvious that Matthew wants to teach something through this. He's going somewhere with this. Of all the people that, 
God could have compelled to come and see the baby king Jesus. It was these pagan astrologers from somewhere near Babylon. And don't forget that astrology, the the interpretation of, of the stars, was strictly forbidden by the law of Moses. So these, these people in, in Moses' time would have been executed for being astrologers. Uh, so not only were they Gentiles, but they were Gentiles who were as utterly estranged from God as a person could possibly be. And those are the people whom God says, come and see the king born to the Jews and your king, the king of kings. That's why uh, over history there's uh, been this... uh, tradition within Christianity that these magi were also kings. There's no evidence in in the text that that's the case. But that's been a long Christian tradition because uh, it's there so that Matthew can underscore that Jesus is the king of kings. That's why the the old Christmas carol says, uh, starts with we three kings. And so it seems, it seems very clear that Matthew is communicating to his Jewish readers a very, very important truth about the Messiah. He's not just your king. He's the king of all nations. I'm amazed, I'm amazed by this every time that I read the, the New Testament. Uh, the, the many, many, many places in the New Testament and in Jesus' own words where he speaks of the kingdom of God going and filling the whole earth and all nations coming to worship uh, the king. In fact, it's an Old Testament prophecy as well, and we'll see that in a moment. But uh, don't forget what a, what a crazy, ludicrous claim that would be to make in Jesus' day, the, the Christians were regarded as, as just a small sect of, of Judaism and a persecuted sect at that, not one that was expected to last. And they were claiming Jesus is the king of kings. All nations are coming to worship him. And that's certainly what has happened over the last 2,000 years as, as the church has grown. And, and here we are, the people of all people most far away from God, most estranged from from the land of Israel. And here we are, knowing God and worshiping the king that that God has sent. You see the the beautiful fulfillment of of New Testament scripture over the last 2,000 years. And this is something that the Jews should have understood very well from their own Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah was not supposed to be just their king. So many Jews thought that. The Messiah was going to come and and be their king and overthrow the Romans and and sort of just be the king of Israel. That's so antithetical to the Old Testament scriptures. The chief priests themselves quoted from, from Micah 5, and that certainly means they should have known Micah 4 as well, where Micah prophesied, Uh, This is Micah 4, uh, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And, And listen to this. He says, peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. 
Just like we also read from Psalm 72, uh, as I mentioned, it's a psalm that was first written to Solomon or about Solomon, but taken almost immediately as a messianic psalm. And, and consider Psalm 72, verse, verse 8, where it says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Notably, those are words that are, that are, are uh, engraven in our own parliament buildings as, as testimony to the fulfillment of those very verses. Continuing in Psalm 72, May desert tribes bow down before him. May his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Well, brothers and sisters, this has to be the most important thing that Matthew wants us to pick up from this story of the Magi who came from so far away to go and, and, and visit and worship the baby Jesus. They show that Jesus is the promised king, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. That child who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the baby Jesus is your king and my king. He's the king of all nations, and he will be the king of many more nations as the church continues to grow. We, after all, are, are the very definition of the ends of the earth that, that Psalm 72 speaks of. Jesus was born to be the king of kings. And scripture teaches that all kings and all nations will come and bow before this king. The, the visit of the Magi then is, is really a, a small foretaste and a picture of the kingdom of God that would soon be coming. A kingdom that has already been coming, has been growing for 2,000 years now and is continuing to grow more and more individuals, communities, and yes, indeed, entire nations and governments are coming to know him and being brought under his rule. Now, what's amazing and, and, and what's, what's telling and revealing uh, for things to come in Matthew's gospel is that God revealed the significance of this moment, the birth of the king of kings to these pagan wise men so that they would have the privilege of coming to worship the newborn king even while Jesus' birth was met with indifference and even opposition by the leaders of the people of God. And that's the, 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 the second and the third lessons that we should also pick up from, from this story uh, so secondly, Jesus' birth is met with apparent indifference from the religious leaders. These wise men, think about it, these wise men show up in Jerusalem speaking about a sign that they saw in the heavens that the king of, Jews, of the Jews had been born and, and that they ought to go and worship him. And Herod consulted with the chief priests and the scribes and, and they were plenty acquainted with Scripture clearly enough to be able to point out here's where the Messiah should be born. They can point to the exact chapter and verse. And you have to wonder, why didn't they go with the Magi to go and worship 
the king as well. If you think about it, these, these, these wise men come from far, far away, and they come saying that your king has been born, and, and we want to come and worship him. And, and the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be born. And both the chief priests and the scribes, so don't forget these are, these are groups that hated each other, the chief priests and the scribes. The, the chief priests are the liberal clergy, and, and the scribes are the, the conservative theologians, and they hated each other. But both of them were there to hear this uh, announcement or to hear this question from, from Herod. And apparently, maybe it was, was racial pride or, or spiritual, a sense of, of spiritual superiority, but whatever it was, none of them felt like it was maybe worthwhile to come and, and, and see this king for themselves. You have to think, what are the chances? You're, you're there, you're waiting for the Messiah, who, who the scripture says would be born, and, and the scripture says all nations are going to come and worship him, and, and the Gentiles in darkness are going to see a great light. And, and then you get these magi that come into, into Herod's throne room, and, and they say, hey, you know, we don't know anything about your, your religion and, and your scriptures, but we saw this thing in the, in the stars, and, and we all concluded that you must have had a king born and that we felt compelled to come and, and worship him. And, and all these religious leaders do is say, well, you know, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, so have a safe journey and, and good luck. Hope you find him. And, and they don't come after him. You have to think, where's their interest in this Messiah. It's just astounding and really appalling that nobody among the religious leaders on either end of the political and religious spectrum, nobody thought, hey, maybe we should take a look at this ourselves. So Matthew wants us to see not only do the Gentiles who walked in darkness, not only did they see a great light to come and worship the King of Kings, but sadly, and this sets the pattern for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. The people of God who had the Word of God and knew it well are totally uninterested and, and out of the loop. Thirdly, Matthew wants us to see another thing, and that's that Jesus' birth was not just met with indifference, but also with opposition. The old paranoid Herod was troubled at the news of Jesus' birth. And he was troubled because he had zero interest in giving up his kingdom and surrendering that to this new king. Herod's life was all about Herod and Herod's kingdom. And that meant this king, Jesus, was a serious threat to Herod. Well, let me ask you, how many of, of us or of our family or friends, or neighbors react to the kingship of Jesus in the exact same way as Herod did. Some people, like the religious leaders at that point in time, some people are just indifferent. They think nothing of, who is this King Jesus? He means nothing to me. Others hate the thought of a King Jesus who might dare to claim authority and kingship over my life, and who might undermine or even overturn the kingdom and kingship that I am building for myself. How many of us are like Herod, who resist the king of kings? Because we insist 
on being the king of our own lives. And we are determined to keep on building and defend at all costs the kingdom that we are building for ourselves, to live by our, own, by our own rules and to step on and crush anything that might question our, our absolute ruling, our absolute reign over our own lives. That was Herod and, and I dare say many people in our own communities as well and hopefully not, but possibly even some of us. Let me say it clearly then. Jesus' kingship is a threat to your kingdom. He was born to be the king of kings. And that means you too and me must bow before this king Jesus. We will either bow before him in gladness and joyful submission as these three magi lost in darkness who saw a great light as they did or we will bow before him on the last day by force, as one day Herod will do, and one day the religious leaders of Israel will do. The fact that he is king means that his law will rule and must rule in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our businesses, in our church, in our communities, even, yes, in our governments. We must bow before the king of kings. Either we will be conquered by the love and the grace of the king of kings, and we will be enraptured with his glory and willingly, joyfully bow before him, serving him with gladness, as Psalm 72 says that the nations will do, or we will, like Herod, and ultimately, as it turns out, the religious leaders as well, resist him and wage war against him. And if this chapter is clear about one thing, it is clear that right from the beginning, notwithstanding all the opposition of kings and leaders and princes, God is with this baby boy Jesus, protecting him and establishing him and ultimately establishing his reign so that no opposition against him will ever ultimately prevail. So this visit then from the Magi is a clear foreshadowing of things to come in Matthew's gospel. The nations are going to come and see and respond with joy to the, to the light and to the grace of this King Jesus. The people who are lost in darkness will learn to love him even while many in political positions of power or religious positions of power will respond to this king with indifference and even hostility. And brothers and sisters, I pray that this Christmas morning that you would have a heart that is soft and that is joyfully ready to worship this king, Jesus, as these, as these magi did. And that's where I want to focus just briefly for the rest of this morning. Our last point, the joyful, heartfelt worship of these magi. As soon as the wise men left Jerusalem towards Bethlehem, it was about a five-mile journey, it says they suddenly saw this star or this light once again hovering over Bethlehem, and it apparently confirmed that they were on the right track because it says, and, and notice what it says about their reaction when they saw that star again. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at seeing that star. Now, how else can you 
affirm and underline and bold and italicize their great joy. It's a fourfold uh, emphasis on their joy. They, it doesn't just say they rejoiced. It doesn't just say that they rejoiced with joy. It doesn't even just say they rejoiced with great joy. It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's about as strong a phrase as you can possibly give to describe the joy of these wise men. So stop and imagine what joy filled the hearts of these people who were lost in darkness. It's as, the, as I've mentioned from the prophet Isaiah, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And that's exactly what happened with the Magi, not just literally as they saw the star, but also spiritually, it seems their hearts were open to the significance of who this king was also for them. Consider also Isaiah 60, uh, verse 3, that says, Nations, speaking of the Messiah, nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The birth of the King of Kings will be met with indifference and opposition, but also with exceedingly great joy. And that's, of course, why we're here this morning, because we are the people who were lost in darkness. We and our ancestors who worshipped pagan gods, who knew nothing of God, who didn't love him, who didn't walk with him, we have come to see the great light in the king uh, of kings. And it's our desire to be here to worship him as well. These wise men understood that the most important thing in the whole world that they could do in that moment was to spend weeks maybe months, making the long, hard journey from Babylon to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to worship that newborn king. And they did so clearly with absolute, unrestrained, heartfelt joy. Nothing more to them than that they could be in the presence of this great king. Well, that worship, in the case of, of these Uh, These wise men included also the giving of sacrificial gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were all expensive gifts of the kind that were typically given to to royalty. And and again, we see the the words of Psalm 72 being fulfilled here, where it says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. You might think of Isaiah 60, verse 6, which also says they shall, uh, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Well, here in Canada, it's, it's obviously a, a Christmas tradition to, to give gifts to one another. I'm sure uh, some of you have done that this morning or, or will do so uh, later. Now, stay with me. Don't be distracted thinking about those, those gifts. But understand that, that ultimately... Uh, Christmas is ultimately a time for us to give our gifts to the King of Kings, to do so gladly. That's what these wise men understood. There's nothing more important than to give your gifts to the King of Kings. Here I don't mean uh, primarily financial gifts to the church. I mean the gifts of, of our entire selves and all that we have to the service of this great King. Paul says in in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, good and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christmas is a time to rejoice 
that the King of Kings has been born, and it's a time to devote ourselves again to giving our entire selves as a gift to this King in his worship and in his service. What the wise men probably didn't know is that this King of Kings would really give us the greatest gift of all. He was born in Bethlehem in order to go to the cross in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem to lay down his life for our lives, to give us the greatest gift, which is peace with God through his sacrifice. He came to give us eternal life and God's unconditional, steadfast, never-dying love by giving his very life in our place so that we could be forgiven and restored to God's favor. This Christmas, don't forget that that is the greatest gift of all, the gift that God has given to us in the Savior who has given his life for us. And the greatest gift is not the one that we give to him, but the one that he has first given to us. So this Christmas, take the time to remember that, to rejoice, just as these wise men rejoiced. Make sure that your rejoicing is a rejoicing that's rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at this king. And give yourselves then in response, just as these uh, magi did. Give yourselves in response to this king, your king, the king who is worthy of your service, who has given us more than we could ever, ever give him back. So honor him with your sacrifices of praise in the first place and then with all else that you have. No gift will ever compare with the gift of our Savior born in Bethlehem. So come and worship him. Amen.